Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The only thing better than grinding all night for your side hustle is your roommate picking you up with Mickey D's breakfast. The perfect pickup deal. There's a deal for every morning at McDonald's. Right now, taste breakfast perfection when you get a warm and savory sausage McMuffin with egg for just $2.50. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Hello, my name is Dave Hanwardy and there will be no encore. Welcome to episode 187 of the No Encore Music Podcast. I'm joined by Craig Fitzpatrick. Startled Craig Fitzpatrick. It's been a week and you just went, hello. It really has been a yeah. fucking week. Also, the standing, like Dahi's been um, kind of giving out slightly about your standing stance as we record the podcast. Like, it's quite something when I'm the only other person like on the podcast right now. It's like I'm scolding you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm getting a stern talking to and I'm enjoying it. There'll be other people on the... Okay, that got weird. There'll be other people on the show soon, though. We have our good friend Carlo Malacca coming in later on to help us review the Nick Cave album. Yay! And uh, if uh, the remote recording that I did doesn't get screwed up or anything, I may have corrupted the file. Who knows? We will hopefully have an interview section with our roving reporter at large, David Tapley of Tandem Felix fame, as he releases the debut Tandem Felix album, Romcom, which is out now. Yeah, happy Felix Day. On Bandcamp and I presume he's uploaded it to all the ones. We had him out for a couple of pints and he's supposed to get like the record up at midnight but he went home to drunkenly upload it onto Bandcamp maybe a couple minutes after midnight. That's my Beautiful. fault for anyone who was counting those minutes down. Also, can we just point out that the applause for was for Carlo as opposed to Nick Hay's very intense and serious um, yeah, Until record. he said it, I <laughs> it was, thought it would have like, been obvious. Yeah, so now I'm like questioning everything I've done. Um, that no was applause. not a preview of the tone. It will get serious and it will get great. No applause from Tapley, I see. Or for Tapley, rather. I went woo. Did you? Woo! Oh! 
Check out the record. The moment has passed, Craig. It's been a week. It has. You nearly lost a thumb? Oh my god. I nearly <laughs> lost an appendage. Last night, I got a taxi from a local pub back to my gaff. And the decadence these days. I know, right? I got paid. <laughs> Thank god. It was get- Oh man, I was getting very touch and go. I didn't go to Ireland Music Week last week in the end because I had no money. Yeah. Even though I had a fucking freebie to go. I was like, no, nah, you know what? I'm just not going to bother. I also was fucking shattered. Uh, so listen... Getting out of the cab, and I'm like, oh, good to talk to you, man. And I slammed the door, slammed the door. And then I like, I realized very quickly something was wrong. And what was wrong, Craig, was my right thumb was caught in the door, which closed. The door was closed. See, I don't understand this. I can't picture this. How does the door close when there's that level of blockage? See, you asked me this, right? And I said to you, I didn't stop and take a picture because I was too busy panicking. And as I opened the door, I was like, okay, this, this thumb is either completely broken or gone. Yeah. Thankfully, it was neither. It is very sore, though, and swollen. But you're wiggling it about your grant. It's got a big bruise on it. Grand. Yeah, it wasn't great. And it was. And the taxi driver was like, oh my god. And I was like, no, no, it's fine. It's my fault. I'm not going to sue. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Sorry, I'm just being an idiot. Well, the only injuries I had this week were kind of emotional. existential yeah. and emotional in nature. So, yeah, that's all good. I feel like everyone <laughs> I've talked to this week has had a tough week. I think like the seasons have changed against us. It's, or it's World Mental Health Day as well. And World Porridge Day. Oh, yeah, it's <laughs> World Mental Health Day. I wrote a piece about Joker. And it's a depiction of mental illness, and I've had nothing but grief and abuse from people online on World Mental Health Day. Someone told me, well, not nothing but grief and abuse, some people have said nice things. But most people have said mean things, Craig, and I haven't even looked at the Facebook comments because I will not do that. But on my own personal Twitter feed, go and have a look if you want to see people being really fucking horrible. Someone said they hope I fall down a well. So there you go. Like you're in some weird nursery rhyme or something. <laughs> like I, I did say like how hey, the film falls down. And they're like, well, I hope you fall down. Oh, oh well. Okay. What you should have done is compiled a list of the best songs and albums of the decade. Really? Yeah, because that's what Pitchfork did. They did. everyone is hyped, Up in arms about it, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, the top 200 songs of the 2010s and then the top 200 albums of the 2010s came out during the week. Very quickly, it became apparent to me that these lists, while they have merit, for sure, and there are some great stuff on them, it's a case of a really limited selection pool of taste, I think. A lot, some genres are just completely not bothered with. Uh, classical music, metal. Yeah. I also think this speaks a lot to how Pitchfork has just completely fallen apart as a, yeah. you know, there's no heft really there anymore. Don't get me there's wrong, no- anyone who's listening from Condé Nast, I do want to write for Pitchfork someday. <laughs> However, it really has changed. To me, like, it was evident anyway, but then the, re- but the recent Taylor Swift campaign, <laughs> the recent Taylor Swift campaign was, I was like, okay, right, you're not even hiding this anymore. They have their favourites. They have their favourites, right, who they want to be friends with, like Rihanna, Nicki Minaj, Drake, coincidentally all of whom feature, Beyonce feature multiple times in this Thing. I think they should have put a fucking limit on it, by the way, of like two tracks per artist, maybe, you know? Yeah. I, is that wrong? Because no. there's so many fucking songs. I started to write out a list during the week of 10 songs that should that should have made the top 200, but instead, I think we're going to do our own thing eventually, aren't we? So Yeah, let's do something a bit different. We'll be a lot more considered than Pitchfork. We're considering doing, <laughs> we'll a, do nothing a 20, <laughs> <laughs> we're considering doing a decade retrospective, but maybe in like January, because like... To do it now would be to cobble it together. To do it in December would be to step all over the end of year stuff that we will be doing. To do it in January would be sublime. (laughs) (laughs) But to do it in January... Chef's kiss. So how about I run down the top 20 songs? Yeah, go on, go for it. And then you can do the top 20 albums. I'm excited. Okay, we won't spend too long on this, but we should do some commentary. At number 20, M83's Midnight City. Yeah, that's top 20, right? It's a fabulous song. It's a fabulous song. It might be top 10. 
I think it could be uh, you can make the argument I think it should be there now you, hold on you have that kind of debate of, of like are you judging the music are you judging cultural impact are you you know the narrative around it we'll talk about it go on they seem to be doing a bit of both uh, yeah, number 19 Vampire Weekend Hannah Hunt yeah definitely 100% phenomenal song absolutely beautiful best song. great memories of hearing it that summer with the sun blasting through the window number 18 this is a top 10 for me I think Kanye West Runaway featuring Pusha T I mean you could make the argument that Runaway is probably top 5 right in terms of impact that, I feel like that spawned its own genre of hip hop yeah maybe go on it's amazing uh, Push T by the way I think that's his only appearance on this top 200 like if you know you know isn't in there in the top 200 songs and this isn't a case of hey look oh, they fought against recency bias because they did not fight against recency no. bias there are some inclusions here that are mind boggling number 17 Jamie XX Gosh <laughs> above Runaway don't look at let's not get okay, into the okay. let's not get into cause, okay because you're going to go crazy okay, with the yeah, next yeah, just one keep going. Number 16, love it if we made it, 1975. It's a grand song. It's it's maybe top 200 if you're doing the cultural impact thing. Thank you, Kanye. Very cool. Number 15, <laughs> what is this doing here? Work featuring Drake by Rihanna. Work, 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 work. The worst song on that album. It was a big hit, though. So again, and they like Rihanna. They like oh, we all like Rihanna. Do we? I, I, okay, yeah. I, I, here's my hot take. Auntie's brilliant, but it you is think not. it's overrated. It yeah. is not brilliant. It is not brilliant. <laughs> it's most overrated album of the last X years. Most overrated Just artist. Just because she does karaoke over Tame Impala song. <laughs> Rihanna's good, but she ain't that good. I'm sorry. Number 14, Angel Olsen, Shut Up, Kiss Me. Great song, but top number 14. Yeah. I, I'm doing it now. I'm, I'm, I'm picking no, the fucking... No, go on, keep going. Number 13, Chief Keef, I Don't Like. No. <laughs> Craig doesn't I like. I don't like. Craig, you don't like. This one you like, though. Sky Ferreira at number 12. Everything is embarrassing. Yeah, that's top 10. That yeah, was he, a hot press staple. It was, yeah. That's one of the best pop songs of the decade, for sure. It uh, legitimately Mines, is. Yeah. Tremendous song, yeah. And very influential, I feel. Bill Callahan with a title that every Irish person would be like, oh, <laughs> riding for the feeling. Do you know it? I, I will confess that I don't know it. <laughs> yeah. The title wouldn't really. Yeah. I could do the Drada accent again. Go on. She was out last night. She was riding for the feeling. That's a disgrace. Go on. Number Continue 10, Lil Uzi Vert, XO Tour Life. Or Lilith or something. I don't know. Yeah, this feels very like... Number 10. Midi and, yeah. okay. <laughs> Number 10. Number 9. Ugh, here we go. Time for us to have a fight again. Lana Del Rey, Video Games. Top 10. What did I call it all the way back in 2011? Baron. You said she was... Yeah. Baron And song. she was a fraud. Yeah. Which I think you've... Like, you've changed back. your opinion yeah, on her. I've walked that back, but I still it's think video games... It's a tremendous song. It mm. had a huge impact. You'll, you'll admit that much, right? Oh, this is... Are you doing the Beatles thing again? Well, Dave, you'll admit the cultural impact of the Beatles, won't you? I'm like, yeah, fine. Okay. With the Beatles, you just have to say, you will admit it's good music, and then you say no. No. <laughs> Go on. Video games is fine. It's not as good as, like, blue jeans, for example. You know? Don't look at me like it's that. Better. Go Don't on. look at me like that. Number eight, Solange, Cranes in the Sky. Recency bias. No, that's a good song. I like that album, but no, it's not. It's maybe top 200. No, it's not top 200. Continue. <laughs> Number seven, Mitski, Your Best American Girl. Great song. Yeah, and Mitski was always going to be there for them, wasn't it? Like, they, you know, it's part of she's the She's a pitchfork creative nurse in a lab. But she is great. And she is tremendous. Yeah, and it's a tremendous to be yeah. fair. And if you ever get a chance to see her live, go and do it. Number six, Azealia Banks, uncancelled briefly with 212. <laughs> Lucky Azealia, because they've um, expunged the existence of a lot of artists from their lists. But um, yeah, I mean, that's a tremendous song. It, like, it... It really announced her to the world stage and how she's capitalised. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, uh, I think we were instrumental in getting her on the cover of Hot Press. Yeah, yeah. Hot because for 2012. she seemed like she was going to be an absolute megastar yeah. and she's been... 
didn't sell well that issue. Strange that the Hoppers really should have a problem with the black woman on the front of the magazine, but what can you do? And number five, Gary Glitter with Rock and Roll Part 2. No, No, of course not. (laughs) Number five is The Sublime Thinking About You by Frank Ocean. Yeah, I mean, that has to be there. Well, you know, you could have any number of Frank, so that's, yeah, it's a good representation. Dahi isn't here to give out about our Frank love. (sighs) Frankly, I don't give a damn. Number four, <laughs> will you get in formation? Beyonce will. I mean, do you know what? For what that was trying to do in terms of pushing pop a bit, and it's quite experimental. Um, yeah, great. It had a huge impact, obviously. As a song, it's not one. It's one of those ones where it's very worthy. Uh, I don't listen to it at all. Number three, a song from 2010. Like, are we counting 2010 as the end of a decade? We shouldn't it? really. Right. But Okay. Well, they are. And as a matter of fact, on the albums list, they have a fucking Lady Gaga album from 2009. Do you know that? What? How? And they, they say, it's yeah, got a, they literally have a moment where they go, in brackets, they go, yeah, we know it came out in November 2009. But the impact it had in the decade that followed, I was like, oh, no, you no, can't no, no. do that. List is void. Let's move on to the next news item. Number three <laughs> in the songs list, Robin Dancing on My Own. Humongous song and very influential and Brilliant, a classic. I'd yeah, probably, I'd, that's top 10. Probably. I'd probably put it in at number 50. Number 50. Maybe, yeah. Well, but it's great. Yeah. From the slant that Pitchfork are taking in terms of the pop the pop bias, this is top five, right? If you're going with that angle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, the poptimist list. Number two, speaking of, Grimes and Oblivion. Vastly overrated song. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was listening to it today and it's it's a nice song. Do your impression of it. That's that, no, that was like that was like weird. Do I do an impression of it? I, I think, think you've do. done it before. Yeah, okay. Maybe you need a few whiskeys in you. I don't know. <laughs> and number one, Kendrick Lamar and All Right. I mean, again, cultural impact, everything. But like, is that the one you pick? I don't listen to it, but yeah, it's cultural impact, I guess. Um, from a tremendous album. Let's I feel t- like they're trying <laughs> she to. So upset. <laughs> That Just was the most. This list feels like such a waste of time. And to me, it does feel. It feels like I know some people are like, don't get me wrong. Like you got a good playlist out of it, yada yada. But it does to me feel a little bit like they dropped the ball. A little bit obvious. You know, they've done every decade um, at this point. You know, every decade previously they haven't gone into the twenty twenties. Um, but they've they've revisited their stuff so much and changed their opinions and brought artists to the fore that they never would have championed previously. Because and now it's very trendy to do so. And yeah. made no attempt to kind of talk about that editorial change where, where this was like, I grew up reading Q magazine, <laughs> which is why I'm what I am. But they used to... You could have said Melody Maker would have... They used to... Obviously, they're famous for lists, but they used to quite regularly kind of go, oh, listen, back in like 1994, we gave this three stars. Uh, It wasn't three stars. We got it wrong. It's a five-star album. But they'd always kind of go, hold our hands up. I think Pitchfork have just decided to completely change their reference points and their how they view the musical landscape without any reference whatsoever, which I feel is a bit disingenuous. And with that said, let's crack into the albums. Okay, so at number 20, 20, yeah. DJ Rashad, Double Cup, a favourite of yours, Dave. <laughs> I, I think I've said all I need to say. <laughs> yeah, like, the listeners I, don't I want nothing, to hear me go on about Double Cup again, Yeah, Craig. I have nothing to say on it either. Um, we were talking about recency bias. At number 19, Lana Del Rey's Norman fucking Rockwell. It's just too soon, isn't it? It's, like, very it's clearly soon. a great it's, record. It's great. I would be very surprised if it wasn't in our, if, if we're doing our debate again this year. I'd be very shocked if it wasn't in our top five. But it's just too soon. I feel like people are playing catch up a little as well. Because Lust for Life to me was utterly tremendous and all of the kind of praise that was heaped on the latest record I felt should have been directed towards that as well but anyway so what you're saying is we were ahead of the curve as we so typically are 
At number 18, Kendrick Lamar, Good Kid, Mad City. It's a great it's record. Top 20, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. At number 17, Sufjan Stevens, Kerry and Lowell. That is top 10, top 5, potentially. Uh, as if we're talking purely musically. 50 for me. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay, give me give me your takes on these. Okay, okay. I yeah, I don't even know what you're about to say. I haven't memorized lists, so yeah, I did the first one. This is yours. Right. Number 16 <clears throat> is Joanna Newsom. Have one on me. Good record, but I can't claim to know it intimately. It's a bit of a masterpiece. It's long. She's great. Um, yeah, masterpiece. Fair, fair shout. Number 15, Kanye West. Jesus. It's got to be there. It's got to be in the top 20. I think it's a fun, phenomenal album that like, if they took two songs off of it or if Kanye hadn't just given two songs over to his mates, you're looking at a, a 10 out of 10 flawless album. As it is, it's probably a 9. It's fucking amazing. It is amazing. It is absolutely amazing. It's electricity bottled in a fucking, you know, Spotify top 10 or whatever the fuck it is. I don't know. <laughs> At number 14, Lord with Melodrama. This I disagree with wholeheartedly. Uh, I, I, I really went hard on that record when it came out. I will admit that it has maybe two good songs on it. Uh, but apart from that, baffled. Baffled by the, the adoration for it. Baffled by the hyperbolic nonsense that is associated with it. I'm never here to spoil your fucking party, guys. It's by what you think. But if this was the party, I'm plugging out the fucking mains. Yeah, he's here to critique your party. At yeah, number I'm 13. here to provide a rational critique of your party with no more than 700 words. <laughs> Drake, your boy. <laughs> I don't know. Take care. I guess it's got to be... Right album yeah, I guess then, it's got to be there from, in terms of picking the right album, cultural impact, etc. I maintain he doesn't have a classic. No, he doesn't. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Like that's that's number one hundred for me. Maybe even number two hundred. Speaking of maybe non classics, um, Rihanna's anti at number twelve. I think it's brilliant. Do you? I think it's her best work. Do you? I don't think it is anywhere near the top of this list. Okay. In my again, head. if you start this this list at number two hundred, even number one hundred with anti, that to me is like okay, they ain't they ain't fucking playing around here. The Return of Grimes at eleven. Art Angels overrated album. Good though. Very good. Overrated. Okay, we're into <laughs> Overrated. Oh my God, this is bringing out a terrible song. No, this is good. This is what I've been trying to get you to do for fucking eight years. What? At last. What, Grimes? No. Be, fucking call people out, man. <laughs> Say the word overrated. Fucking criticise. Let's do it. Number 10. Okay, let's go top 10. Channel Orange. Yes. Overrated. <laughs> Fuck. No, no, no. Everything I just said, right? The opposite of that, okay? This album is underrated, if anything. Uh, Channel Orange is without question top 10. It's top 10, yeah. Um, uh, number Frank nine. Ocean, by the way, for anyone who doesn't know. <laughs> D'Angelo, the return of D'Angelo in 2014, Black Messiah. D'Angelo and the Vanguard, stunning, stunning it's top, top 10 20 for me. for me. Top 20, probably. Okay. Number 8, Robin, Body Talk. Uh, I mean, it's up there, but it's not about top 10. It's very good. Hugely influential. You give her that. Number 7, Yes. Vampire Weekend, Modern Vampires of the City. For a brief second, I was petrified that it was going to be the most recent debacle that we got what this year. What album of the year? Fiasco. <laughs> Father of the Bride. That's in our top five, I'm quitting the show. Uh, Modern Vampires of the City is a legitimate 10 out of 10 classic. Yes. Number six, Solange, Seat at the Table. I mean, it's very good. It's really good. But again, there are times when I wonder if we are, in fact hyperbolizing a cultural moment and, an, and a personality. I don't know if the album is that good. It's very, very good, and it's definitely a lot better than the one that came out this year. Which is also very good. I it's really like good. that. It's good. I don't know. It's, I've gone back to it a lot, actually, which I didn't think I would do. I think I see the table would be like number 25 for me. I don't know. Whatever. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> okay, the top five. Yeah. At number five, Fiona Apple. 
I'm looking forward to her new record The Idler Wheel and I'll do the whole title well like The Idler Wheel is wiser than the driver of the screw and whipping cords will serve you more than ropes will ever do you said it mate <laughs> absolutely extraordinary record uh, I believe I gave that a perfect score on Hot Press Magazine when it came out yeah I w- was my only perfect, perfect score, score? really possibly ever yeah. I don't think I ever gave a perfect score on Hot Press I gave two perfect scores when I was in college and I didn't really know what I was doing um, it's tremendous you're very familiar with this or not so familiar not with so this? familiar okay check it out Dave number four to Pimp a Butterfly Had phenomenal to album gotta be there never go back to it yeah it's, <laughs> like, it's I go back to tracks occasionally I don't, like, it's, it's not dissimilar to the D'Angelo record in as much as like you're looking at a million moving parts you're looking at jazz influences you're looking at I really gotta be in the mood for this I don't have a good vinyl player and I don't drink whiskey and I kind of feel like that'd be the best setting to do so but when you put them on and get into them they're clearly fucking flawless albums yeah. and obviously to Pimp a Butterfly was more than just a flawless album it was a legitimate cultural moment it was a legitimate movement statement it propelled the man at the forefront while also raising up an entire sea of people, you can't look past this record. It's it's fucking incredible. But I agree with you. I'm throwing on Dan before I'm throwing on this. Yeah. Okay, top three. A number three, Beyonce with Beyonce. Interesting choice. And I recall when that album came out, Selena Murphy in Hot Press magazine was a huge champion of this record. And to be fair to Selena, she was... As was I. I was going to get to you, Craig. <laughs> I was trying to tee up Selena Murphy and Wallace Bird. I remember talking to her around the time and she was like, wait, you haven't heard that album yet? Hang up the phone now. End this interview and go and listen to it. So to be fair, before Beyonce and, you know, Lemonade happened, and of course, don't get me wrong, Beyonce has been a household name since probably the year 2000 in some form or another, but elevation in her career has has come at certain touchstones. And this one felt more on the side of your kind of real music lovers who were really paying attention to the world and seeing what was happening and also listening to this album and being like, she's actually fucking phenomenal. Who knows what she could do next? And I do wonder if it's a better album than Lemonade. I think it is. I believe musically it is. Obviously, Lemonade has, um, yeah, cultural impact. The whole narrative around it, um, it, it was a real moment. It felt like a kind of communal moment as well. Like, it felt old-fashioned in its release and just everyone kind of, like, for a big pop album, everyone to be kind of dissecting it and talking, you know, the conversation about what was going on with herself and Jay-Z. And, yeah, it, it, like, it felt like a classic in that sense. But I think... The self-titled is more ambitious musically. I think it's got higher high points. And yeah, I, it would be the choice for me. So well done, Pitchfork, on that one. Number two is the album of the decade. <laughs> Kanye West, <laughs> My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Had to be top two, uh, like at least. Fourth best Kanye <laughs> album, as we know. Look, it's a phenomenal record. I'm just not quite 9.9 out of 10 the way everyone else is. I think it has moments where I'm 9.9? Like, that low, mate? What are you talking about? Raise the curtain on the decade. <laughs> Go on, okay, you know what? You take the wheel here. It's a absolutely, it's it's more or less flawless bar Jay-Z's verse on Monster. Now, hang on a second. <laughs> um, I, yeah, you, I can't get Should we bring it. Carlo in for the Monster thing? Yeah, sure, uh, let's that, bring Carlo in. Is that mic still on? Hang on. Hi, Carlo. The magic of recording the album first. <laughs> How's it going? Yeah, I, I, we can't talk about the Jay-Z verse. We can't talk about Monster without hearing from you. That's a war crime. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's truly one of the worst things to happen in music. Why would you say that? Because I think this is the album of the decade for me. I think it's, I think it's unreal. I only, I only wonder if this verse exists as like some sort of odd meta narrative so that they could show that Nicki Minaj was so much better than everybody else on the record. They wanted to give like a scope where they wanted to go, this is as bad as verses get. 
and this is as good as verses get. That's a good. That's a good argument. That's and fair. Yeah. Thank you, Carlo. Thank you, Carlo. Get Cheers. Out of here. Appreciate that. So hang on, but Craig, if, if that's at number two, what could possibly be Blonde. a number? <laughs> Frank Ocean, your boy. <laughs> so I think right guy one. You think Blonde is a silver medal? Do you? Uh, Blonde is bit of a masterpiece. Bit right? of a masterpiece. I think it's, yeah, I think it's silver for me. Um, I can't really pick many holes in Blonde. It's it's exceptional. Um, Facebook story, obviously, is an aberration. Um, yeah, I'd lose that. I'd lose that. But I, I just think the gear shifts in My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, I think the impact it had, um, I think how it fit into the story of Kanye, it puts it right up there. But Blonde, yeah, absolutely sublime. And when you get to this level of records, you're just like... You're splitting hairs, mate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, you mentioned earlier on, Craig, some kind of shifting in the thought process and the, the ranking system. And I guess we, you know, not so much retroactively changing reviews, but certainly looking at them in a, with, with more kind of love than they may have at the time. Uh, I, I asked during the week if you would actually do a deep dive on this, but Brooklyn Vegan beat you to it. Yeah, so they've kind of charted the sea change in taste um, pitchfork-wise over the last few years and just kind of pointed out some notable exceptions based on um, how the albums were ranked um, first time around um, and kind of ones that arrived. It's probably worth pointing out that with Pitchfork, if people don't know, the score that's put on albums is a kind of consensus score. So it doesn't, it's it's weird at times. It sometimes bears no relation to the which actual is why when content you of the review. The review of Kanye West, yay, which was extremely critical and negative and I thought it very proud of itself and very clearly a takedown had the score of seven and everyone was like, what the fuck? Because I guess everyone else in the office is like, no, it's actually it's actually all right. I don't know. So yeah, yeah. So Brooklyn Vegan kind of charted this out. Um, they've pointed out that you know some things only change slightly. Um, like the aforementioned um, dark fantasy and blonde. Some things change a lot. There are some albums ranked very highly that weren't even reviewed upon release. Um, Taylor Swift's Red, no at way, number fifty nine. Weird. Um, so yeah, that is very much a sea change. And there were a handful of artists, or albums, or artists overall that received very high acclaim earlier in the decade but were omitted from this list for one reason or another. Now, I suppose over such a huge amount of time, changing personnel, um, buyouts, things will shift a little. Um, some very acclaimed albums did not land on the decade list, but were landed but landed at considerably lower slots than you might have expected. Oh, sorry, did land, like Run the Jewels, Run the Jewels 2, which received a nine upon release and was ranked as Pitchfork's number one album of 2014, but came in at 131 on the decade's end list. And it's probably worth reading the article because we could really get into the weeds with this. But, you know, for example, um, entirely omitted was Sun Kill Moon. Um, Benji received a 9.2 upon release, landed at number seven on their top albums of 2014. Obviously, um, you know, the kind of problematic nature of Mark Kozlik and, the you know, the fact he's not a great guy. His subsequent releases have been meandering, to say the least. That's fair. Um, that is a it's fabulous kind of record. It's non grata. It's absolutely yes. It, that should be there. Ariel Pink no longer places anywhere near there. They've pointed out um, my bloody Valentine's return. Uh, MBV receiving a nine point one upon release, landing very high on the year end list and not placing. Nick Cave, Skeleton Tree, not there. Big Boy, Miguel, Grizzly Bear, Swans. There's a lot of people that missed out. Essentially, Kalelo's Take Me Apart from 2017, yeah, which I was pushing album. really hard to be our album of the year, and we gave it to Dam in the end. It was, yeah, that was spitting hairs because they were both so, so tremendous. Phenomenal. Well, yeah. Must actually go back to that. There's a lot of politics, obviously. Yeah, and to be fair, some people have list remorse and they just hate it. They hate they hate it, man. They hate list miss. They hate all that kind of stuff. So thank God we're done with list for the week, eh? <laughs> 
In other news, Notorious B.I.G.'s Juicy has topped the greatest hip-hop tracks of all time list. What? You're yeah. kidding. <laughs> so the BBC put this together, um, noted authority on all things hip-hop <laughs> and hip-hop culture. Um, but no, they've gone to the experts. So they called upon more than 100 critics, experts and artists themselves, including the likes of Common and Slick Rick, to compile this new list, which was unveiled during the week. So coming out on top was um, Biggie's Juicy, which is, you know, from Ready to Die, legendary album. Uh, coming in second was Public Enemies' Fight the Power, Mob Deep's uh, Shook Ones Part 2. I was getting ready to hate this list before seeing it. I really can't argue with a lot of it. I mean, I guess the problem some people might have with this list is the lack of, you know, the the kind of the bias against recency is just to the extent of, I'm trying to look at the most recent track here, Runaway at number 12 is from 2010, and that's the most recent hip-hop track, which is a bit strange. It's way more old school. Dave, what do you make of the list? You're a noted hip-hop expert. I'm um, not a <laughs> hip-hop expert, Craig. Uh, tough to argue with was the response from my housemate Richard Chambers, who I messaged it to, and yeah. expecting him to be like, fuck off with your list, mate, you've annoyed me enough. And he was like, yeah, it's pretty good, actually. (laughs) You've got the message. You've got nothing but a G thing. You've got Cream. You've got, you know, NY State of Mind, Dear Mama. It's, it's, if anything, way too predictable. But it's predictable for for a reason. They reminisce over you. International Players Anthem. B.O.B. Ah, so good. Is there, do you like the quote from Simon France? What's the quote? Managing editor of BBC Music. This feels very like it was taught up by committee. Hip-hop is a uniquely American art form that has become a global mainstream phenomenon. Forty years after Rapper's Delight broke into the charts, hip-hop has become the voice for otherwise underrepresented groups in America and beyond. I think the tracks topping the polls show rap's role in speaking truths. They're also examples of deeply personal poetry and an amazing playlist. As much as I agreed with this list, it shouldn't have happened because it um, gave birth to this quote. So, yeah. There you go. Let's move on. That's what happens when you got Patrick Bateman heading up your fucking music department. But hey, listen, I am available for, for writing for the BBC, so if you're listening, you know. You're just available for writing in general. This gun's for hire. Even if it just has it, it He's on uh, Graham Norton tonight. Yeah, yeah. The boss. The, the boss. Okay, I'm excited. Your boss and mine, Bruce Springsteen. Uh, real quick, we're not going to get into it too hard, but we should mention some passings in the music world. Kim Shattuck died. That was very sad. We didn't mention that last yeah, week. Yeah, it happened last week. Uh, just kind of escaped our notice. I hadn't realised um, she was ill. Uh, obviously, um, the kind of the front woman of the Muffs uh, played with Pixies. Tremendous talent and gone way too soon. Way too soon. Awful, awful. Yeah, very, very sad news. And also Ginger Baker, notoriously prickly figure yeah. and highly influential drummer. Legendary drummer. Um, I would recommend maybe checking out his album, his live album with Fela Kuti, which is brilliant. It really is a tremendous display of his tremendous talent. Um, uh, yeah, a troubled dude. I would recommend the documentary Beware of Mr. Baker if you want to check yeah, that yeah. out. Uh, another um, person in the world of music gone way too soon. Little Peep, of course. Uh, I passed away a couple of years ago now, November 2017, Yeah, uh, at very, very young age. And there is now, unfortunately, uh, lawsuits happening, essentially. Uh, his mother, Lisa Womack, filed a lawsuit accusing her son's manager, Stara Stennett, and employees of her company of negligence, breach of contract, and wrongful death in connection with the rapper's death from a drug overdose two years ago. The lawsuit was obtained by Variety, who kind of poured over it and put out the, fine, the finer details, I guess. Long story short, the management company has, of course, 
course come back and said no that is not our fault whatsoever and we'll see you in court this is not what you want to see no we'll see how it plays out but yeah. it's also one of the things where to be fair I mean like it's one of the things where like Lil Peep it's going to be very difficult to ever really kind of legacy him I mean a lot of people have kind of said you know the things he could be doing now I mean like upward trajectory I liked what he was about I would recommend there was an article written I forget who did it now but basically just google Little Peep's Last Days article and you'll find it which was very well written if difficult to read um, he did come across like someone who had an awful lot of potential and could very well have been that voice of a generation it, these things do get blown up hyperbolically when someone passes so early however I will say there is a documentary coming which looks interesting from the trailer so I don't know I mean like someone who isn't going away essentially despite passing away you see the amount of kind of copycat artists that are making a big kind of off the back of that sound so he was very um, ahead of the curve um, gone too soon obviously and yeah huge potential there Rihanna's been talking about the Super Bowl halftime show and why she won't be doing it uh, despite being asked um, she's opened up in a Vogue interview and said that I just couldn't be a sellout can we talk about this Vogue interview for just a second because yeah. there was a thing doing the rounds on Twitter where else during the week where and this got a lot of traction it was someone who effectively like screenshotted a part in the article in which the author the journalist in question like mentioned that they were sitting down with Rihanna and said like I I didn't have time to do to do my questions like so they they, they the, the person what? have you not seen this <laughs> no so the person is like saying like oh I'm winging it and literally like says to Rihanna I haven't done my research you'll have to help me here now here's Was that a were they being genuine or was that some weird tactic to try I think it was a little from column A a little from column B now here's the thing people got fucking furious at this they were like you know God grant me the confidence of a Vogue reporter who's sitting down with Rihanna and hasn't done months and months of research yada 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 and other other people were saying this is white privilege because of course it's a a white author like I mean like they don't need to do any work yada yada and again it got into that kind of level of like okay this is now uncomfortable whatever I can only speak from my, my own white privilege point of view but here's the thing right I understand it. I'm not saying that this journalist isn't a fucking arrogant twat. I'm just saying that, you know, effectively, my situation on this is in the last kind of year, year and a half, whatever, I don't have a timeline for this. And it's not that I'm blasé about it, but I have learned that I get a better interview out of someone by winging it. Uh, it doesn't mean I don't do any research. Of course I do. You're a very meticulous guy when it comes to research. I would recall us going down on the bus to Electric Picnic and you would have fucking killing the planet. Like, you would have pages. Thanks, <laughs> 55, 65 pages. It was a more naive time. We didn't know what was going of on. Of printouts of interviews <laughs> that other people had done. And it's not that I'm, this is not me being like, yeah, man, I just go in there and I just talk. But, like, here's the thing. I, know, I have your press release. I know who I'm talking to. Yeah, you get nerves depending on who the person is. But at the same time, I just want to sit down with you and have a chat. And if we end up talking about fucking Love Island, then fine. You know, like, I'd rather that than just, like, I've got 57 questions and I'm going to ask all of them. The point I'm trying to make here is everyone has a different method. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that the, that the journalist in question here did the right thing or did the wrong thing. And there is an element of, maybe I wouldn't have put that in the write-up, you know. And as someone who does kind of involve myself in the story, because that's another thing. People are like, you know, nothing worse than a writer who involves himself in the story. I think, again, context, you know, it's one of those things. But people went fucking crazy. And I'm just saying, if any, anyone out there who does interviews... Whatever way you do it, if it works for you, if it yields good chat, do how you do it. But yeah, sure, I I would agree wholeheartedly with that. But this seems like maybe a one-off thing. Um, yeah, but of course the outrage is go- just going to be the outrage. Um, but why Rihanna? Why are we talking about her? Apart from the interview. Um, so yeah, the Super Bowl halftime uh, rejection. She's obviously declined to perform um, at the music event um, in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick. So yeah, the exact quote was that she 
said she couldn't dare perform at the halftime show for what who gains from that not my people I just couldn't be a sellout I couldn't be an enabler there's things within that organisation that I do not agree with at all and I was not about to go and be of service to them in any way and it's an interesting quote coming out so soon after Jay-Z has kind of teamed up with the NFL um for like he's faced a huge backlash in his kind of handling of this partnership of course his stance is that they've asked me to kind of help them internally change their mindset and be better but it seemed quite cynical and obviously rihanna has um you know jay-z's her kind of artistic mentor and i guess business mentor to a large degree so it's interesting to see her take that stance that stance would be chiming with um hip-hop culture and the community at large i think and I, i think she's right She's got a book on the way, described as a visual autobiography. Now, meanwhile, Slipknot's Corey Taylor has said that the representation of rock and metal at the Super Bowl is, quote, long overdue. And that made me go, Slipknot? They're playing, so yeah. The Super Bowl? That <laughs> they, sounds amazing. They are not playing. But they're not. In not. fact, the reason that Corey Taylor said this was because he's airing his support of disturbed <laughs> David Draymond who has hopes of performing the US National Anthem before next year's event. He told Loudwire that he dreamt of doing the Super Bowl my entire life. It's long overdue for rock and metal to be represented at the Super Bowl. Uh, let's make our voices heard. This is Corey Taylor in support of our brother David Draymond of Disturbed and let the NFL know we want him to sing the anthem. Yeah. If America can use metal music to torture foreigners overseas, they can definitely include it in the other patriotic th- thing they get involved <laughs> in, which is football. Let's stir it up, said Disturbed on their Facebook page. Uh, I love my country and I'd be honoured beyond words to have the opportunity to try and inspire, strengthen and give hope at a time when we need these things more than than ever. Plus, it'd be nice to have rock represented on some level at the Super Bowl and to prove to everyone that there are rock singers out there who can do the anthem as much just as any pop artist out there and even possibly take it higher. Are you ready, Craig, for American football to get down with the sickness? Very much so. Um, it is also being confirmed that Jennifer Lopez and Shakira will perform it next year. So we're not Super ready Bowl to get down with the sickness. No. Okay, that's no. a shame. Okay, fine. Uh, ja Rule has said that he hasn't seen any of the Fire Festival documentaries. I don't believe him. I don't believe him either. Uh, I don't believe anything Ja Rule says, to be quite frank. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, like he's kind of made uh, his bed, hasn't he? You yeah, know? he was asked about it in an interview and he replied, I have not. I lived it, Andy. Andy was interviewing him, by the way. I don't know how prepared he was. I'm good. I love the idea that he just ends every sentence with the word Andy, Andy yeah. no matter where he is or what he's doing. Uh, yeah, he, he added later when he was asked if he'd staged another festival. Um, well, I mean, um, fire wasn't my fault. Here's the thing, Andy. I want to do it the right way, the right partners. And here's what I know. I have the biggest festival in the world, even if it never happened. That's not how it works. I'm sorry. Elton John, meanwhile, mistook Bob Dylan for a gardener. Yeah, he's got a memoir out where he talks about his crazy drug years. Uh, he revealed that he once attempted to give scruffy Bob Dylan a makeover after he mistook him for a gardener. Um, So this is from the Tell All memoir, Me. He recalled Dylan turning up to one of his huge parties back in the wilder early days of his career. Um, John says, towards the end of the 80s, I held an insane party in LA, invited everyone I knew. By mid-evening, I was flying, absolutely out of my mind. (laughs) When a scruffy-looking guy I didn't recognise wandered into the lit-up garden. Who the hell was he? Must be one of the staff, a gardener. I loudly demanded to know what the gardener was doing, helping himself to a drink. He was not the nicest guy back in the day. Uh, There was a moment's shock silence, broken by my PA saying, Elton, that's not the gardener, it's Bob Dylan. So Don, then John went on to say that coked out of his brain and keen to make amends, he rushed over, grabbed him and started steering him towards the house. 
Bob, Bob, we can't have you in those terrible clothes, darling. Come upstairs and I'll fit you out with some of mine at once. How is none of this Come in Rocketman? If this had been in the film Rocketman, that film's getting an extra star. Yeah. He says they made it by playing charades and then <laughs> criticised uh, Bob Dylan's skill at charades that he couldn't get the hang of it. He was so hopeless I started throwing oranges at him. Or so I was informed the next morning by a friend. Now, I hate to call bullshit on Elton John, but if you're out of your mind on cocaine to the point where you've remember? lost a decade... You know, I just don't know, I don't know, lads. I don't know. It was like when Keith Richards' memoir came out. It's like, how has he written this himself? Like, he, how does he remember yeah. any of these decades? He hasn't. He hasn't. Okay. I. Do you know what song I threw on this week? And I was like, this is an amazing song. She's in fashion by Suede. Tremendous song, tremendous band, and tremendous person Brett Anderson apparently is because he's been talking about Britpop and how pretty awful it was in terms of misogyny, um, borderline racism, and the like. So he's speaking on BBC Hard Talk. <laughs> I mean, where else are you going to get your Brad Anderson interviews these days? Um, he said, uh, I disassociated myself uh, from that very early on, which is true, Swage did. As soon as I saw what I saw as becoming this kind of laddish, jingoistic cartoon happening, which became Britpop, I very quickly distanced Swade from that. How does one do that, like, as a logistical thing? Just not I, do the interview? I guess, or? yeah, you disagree to do, you know, you, you, you kind of disagree with the stance you're taking. You, do, you know, you're not inclined to do the interviews that form part of a Britpop feature in Face magazine and the like. Um, Underrated which, band? Swade? Hugely underrated because they kind of kickstart, kickstarted Britpop in terms of, um, you know, American music was flying high at the time. Uh, the resurgence of British guitar rock was spearheaded by Suede. Um, quickly, they were not as popular. Um, Blur and Oasis overtook them. But yeah, tremendous, tremendous band. When asked, when asked if this stance made Suede look snobby, he said, I think, uh, did it make us look snobby? Probably, you know, you make lots of mistakes along the way. I'm not perfect, you know what I mean? But all you do, you just go with your instincts. And I saw what was happening with Rip Hop, and to me it felt quite distasteful, it felt nationalistic, it felt like there was quite a strong thread of misogyny, and I didn't think Suede should be part of that. Yeah. Well said, Brett Anderson. Yeah. Um, Suede, incidentally, heavily influenced by Morrissey. <laughs> well, we all make mistakes, Craig, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, we do. Who we among do. us? Speaking of... Mistakes? mistakes? <laughs> the, yeah. David Tapley has released an album <laughs> under the guise of Tandem Felix. I mean, we tried to talk him out of it. Yeah. Um, no mistake there. Tremendous stuff. And do you know what's also tremendous stuff? Your conversation with him recently. Okay, so this is take two of the Tandem Felix <laughs> chat, uh, because the first one didn't work, did it die? It didn't work. We had uh, technical difficulties. I love technical difficulties. apologize profusely. They're good crack. To be fair, I was kind of Jeremy Paxmaning David Tapley over here. Uh, we were talking about society, we were talking about kind of all kinds of things, and whether or not a musician can be, you know, uh, unhappy with their lot, I suppose, in a contrasting world where no one is equal. But I guess the crux of what I was asking you, though, and like this is about as serious as I'll get, because I think it is a genuine question, I'm just curious how, like, how you are like, just generally feeling, in, in, whether it's cathartic, happy, sad, I don't give a fuck, you know, like, on to the next one. I, I think every musician has a different relationship with their art, and I'm just curious as to what that is for you at this exact moment in time, if that isn't too ridiculously personal a question. No, not at all. I mean, I think that's, a, that's what it's all about, really. Um, how do I feel about it? I, it definitely is very cathartic. I think that's the kind of the obvious answer, but it's it is true. It is a kind of a huge release, no pun intended. But um, 
I kind of don't, I'm not able to do that thing where I kind of dwell too much in the moment or look back or whatever. So I probably, the, the time where I enjoyed this album and the concept of this album the most was probably towards the end of making it. And then as soon as that was finished, as soon as we got it mastered, all I could think about was moving on to the next thing. I didn't even really yeah. overthink about releasing it or having a strategy towards that or any of that sort of kind of slightly more dull admin type uh, thinking. I kind of just straight away started thinking about, okay, now how do I do a direct, a direct reaction to that music <laughs> and, and move on to something that's kind of the next page in the book or whatever? Like you, You've had it for a quite a long time now. It's about, whatever, three years in the making. Does it feel like... It, uh, it's from like a kind of a different time for you or does it feel like it kind of came at kind of, are you releasing it at a moment where it feels like it's still kind of, because I just know that like a lot of musicians will, will record something and then they will sit with it in the build up to a release or something for a good while and then it will feel like it's kind of very much past or does it actually feel like it's kind of, this is the book end of that record, if you know what I mean? Um, I think lyrically and thematically it started out as maybe something different but um, I guess maybe I was sort of writing subconsciously about something that has now taken on new meaning or whatever I think when when I started writing these songs there was a large amount of humour involved Mm. and I found everything I was doing as being quite fun and quite funny and then as kind of time went on and like I went through a big breakup and that was a huge indicator to me that the songs that I'd been writing that I had thought were funny, there was actually a lot more that I was subconsciously writing about. So every, pretty much every song on the record then had new meaning to me, mm. which I guess also kind of picked the album title for me. So the, 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 there's the, the raw man, the calm. Mm. the romantic and the comedic or whatever, all in one uh, neat little package of 10 songs. So, yeah, I can kind of, I see now how when I, because we've been playing a lot of these songs live for, for, since as long as they've been written, so the past three years or whatever, so maybe people who have seen us before will recognize some of the songs on the record. But I definitely think about them in a different way now than the way I did at the start. So that's kind of, that's a, I guess a fun thing that's maybe it's kind of actually allowed me to take more time and I haven't gotten bored of the songs because yeah. I've always found I maybe I didn't realise what, what I had actually written and then yeah. looking back on them now it was like, oh right, I was because <laughs> it's yeah. really sad at the time or yeah, whatever. Like, I really, really like that idea because I mean the Making Dinner on Valentine's Day is kind of a really good example of that mm. where kind of when you released that track, I had known that you, like I didn't know you before that, but I had known yeah. that you had gone through a breakup or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And this was clearly written, say, from before that time. Sure. So it has a whole totally different meaning yeah, yeah. right now, right? Which is like massively powerful. And right? it was huge, like I, I did have, you know, well, maybe not huge, but it, it crossed my mind a couple of times that maybe there were certain lyrics I should change mm. in a few of the songs to um, not past tense eyes them, but maybe just may, you know uh, maybe just change them so that I'd feel more comfortable with singing them but then I guess 
that would be slightly false. Um, there's something about the way they were written at the time. There's a, there's a naivety and like definitely there there was there was a head in the clouds aspect of the way I was living my life at the start of the recording of this album that I can kind of look back at now and say the, the songs are a little bit smarter than I had realised. And <laughs> there's actually loads of hints from yeah, my subconscious yeah, yeah. to myself in these songs that are like, no, actually, like, wake up, this, you're real unhappy. <laughs> just such a cool idea then because and I guess like oil money is another example of mm. that where it's like suddenly this like I don't know they feel like they're such like a part of a story together to me anyway it feels like oil, money, time, is a, you know? oil money is a great example so for people who haven't listened to the record yet or won't um, <laughs> the idea <laughs> or is flat out refusing to <laughs> yeah yeah I'm uh, boycotting that record <laughs> the idea of that one was that it was supposed to be a sort of a like comic take on it there will be blood type character or something I I also I loved having a title that was so suggestive of like a real <laughs> political statement but it actually just being a song about me like dancing around the desert like striking like winning the Euro millions essentially and now when I kind of look at those lyrics and there's all these n ideas in it that at the time I thought were funny about my headspace or whatever and now listening back I can hear something completely different so uh, yeah it's the romantic and the comedic all well, that's, in one that's arguably the most theatrical song on the record and like you're not short of I guess performance I mean like even from seeing you live a bunch making dinner on Valentine's Day is a great example because yeah, even the videos and stuff as well there's yeah, like very much but there's, there's generally like kind of a jaunty upbeat surface level tone to a lot of the tracks that you write I mean Birthday sure. Boy isn't on this record but it's just a, it's a beautiful song to listen to but of course when you go beneath the surface you might find some darkness and that's true of a lot of great music that's true yeah. of a lot of like beautiful pop music and like you know it's, it's always nice to scratch beneath that surface but it's interesting that someone could go to a Tan and Felix gig see you up there kind of with a glint in your eye you know and a, a, like a, a penchant for uh, getting people involved really but they might listen to those lyrics on Valentine's Day and be like Jesus fucking Christ mm -hmm. that's devastating but then people might never hear those lyrics they might never understand the sentiment behind it and I guess the duality of that I guess could either be on any given night something that's fun to hide behind or else it's like oh Jesus Christ I'm really spilling this out there now I do have a good anecdote about that actually which was I was opening for Saint Sister on a tour and uh, like the dream audiences are Saint Sister audiences because they're there to hear people sing more so than bands or whatever. So I, I opened the tour with just acoustic guitar and, and was, was singing and everyone got there early as well. I don't know, it was just, it's just something about their, their fan base or whatever. They wanted to... Uh, get their money's worth so they uh, there was very few times that people would be piling in during my set and we were playing in Limerick 
and there was this guy right in the front row and I didn't think he was paying attention or I could tell he was somewhere else and then I closed the set with Making Dinner on Valentine's Day and the final line of that song is I tell you that I wish I could say and then I finish off thank you very much everyone put my guitar down started packing up my cables and stuff and he just got out of his seat leaned towards me as people were still clapping and he just goes why didn't you stay? <laughs> uh, I just said, I'll tell you later. Um, and I was like, okay, he was really paying attention. That's uh, actually kind of scary. Like, and going back to oil money as well from, and of course, like this is stereotypical coming from me now as well. Like oil money, uh, like production wise is unbelievable. Mm. And it feels like it like moves from like one like section to another section to another section. Can you, even just as an example of the kind of the production on the record, can you break down oil money and how you kind of did it? Okay. So that, yeah, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there, Dahi. That was exactly the idea we were going for. I kind of wanted to have every single section of the song sound like you could almost peel that out and it'd be its own song it's or whatever. Song. So I kind of wanted to, we could have gone way, way more into that, but we, I think we, we found that it would be, it was cohesive enough as it was. So like the first verse has one certain configuration of guitars, drums and different sounds in the next chorus or whatever. So every single time, um, it chops and changes and there's one point where everything breaks down and a different sounding drum kit comes in and we kind of likened it to uh, it's like in one of those classic album television show episodes or whatever where you're hearing playback of the record and the producers of the show have synced it in such a way that it then cuts into you know Bono in the uh, in the vocal booth or whatever with the headphones on and you can't hear anything except for his voice and maybe a little bit of guitar and drums bleeding out his headphones so like it does that for a second yeah, yeah. And so we kind of just wanted it to change and keep changing as much as possible so that was just like it took months to yeah. get that sounding right because it's it's so dodgy because the, like when you get into the weeds in that much it almost mm. starts to it, it it's it's very likely that it can get in the way of an actual song sometimes as well 100% you know? and then I think we'd be focusing in so much on 15 seconds of music that when we'd zoom out and start playing the song from the start to listen to how the kind of the transitions and stuff work that we'd get to that 15 seconds and be like, Jesus, the amount of work we put into this 15 seconds, there's loads of stuff happening here and then it's just all gone. So I was freaking out for a minute thinking that it was, maybe it was way too frenetic and it was too much patchwork going on. But I, th- I don't know, I think it works. Yeah. Um, we made a video for that recently, which is coming out next week, that kind of does the same thing. So there's like a few different, a few different characters or whatever that kind of change throughout the duration of the four minute video or whatever it is so I was going to ask you actually a bit about the, the video stuff as well because um, I always see Tandem Felix as obviously having this very 
clear character. I feel like like if you're listening to the lyrics, you kind of know a lot about you as a person, mm. and then you're kind of. I didn't. Uh, oh, definitely, <laughs> I think so. And then, and then as well as that, I mean, if you see you live as well, there's a there's a lot of weight in the kind of the between the tracks and stuff. You're very much a kind of that type of person where it's kind of like quite entertaining between songs as well oh, as yeah, the actual okay. songs itself. And I think that banter, yeah, banter, <laughs> exactly, man into your banter. Yeah. And then like the like the videos then have that same vibe and stuff where they feel very, uh, I guess, lo-fi is the word or something mm. like that. But also have a massive amount of the town of Felix character as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Like the music video thing is something that I. I really love mm. like I love having a piece of music and then when you get to when you get to have the opportunity to put a visual aspect to it there's it's like there's infinite different options um, wh- which usually distills down to me dancing in front of a camera miming along <laughs> exactly, at yeah. half time <laughs> speed looking like a fool or whatever which is again it's, it's an entertaining sort of uh, juxtaposition or something but this, so this, yeah, I think I think the songs that we've done videos for like that before have been the more funny, the funny videos have kind of been associated with the kind of faster, happier sounding songs. Um, we are planning on doing a video for each song on the record. I mean, every song. So it's every like, song. Is it 10, 10 tracks? Is 10 it? tracks. Wow. Same as yours, Dahi. My Same influence. Remember my influence. <laughs> yeah, it was all you. Definitely, you got everybody. I like to think that it fucking tracks. was at this stage. The many times I've dropped my optimum track list. Exactly. Yeah. I like that the Tapley was listening. Ten, ten is up. Well, yeah, we had one that was quite long, so we split it into part one and part two just to hit the <laughs> quota of ten songs. Thank you very just much. For you, just for you, DH. Appreciate it, mate. Um, yeah. So doing a, a video for every single song is obviously financial. Nightmare, uh, yeah, craziness. But we, uh, I, I'm, I'm doing a lot of the videos myself, and they are definitely lo-fi. And the <laughs> ones that we're uh, employing other people to do are, yeah, that's there. That's how it's done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I don't know. I, I, I actually really like visual arts, and I've been, Jesus, in the very, very early days of Tandem Felix, I. I uh, took this massive project on to make a feature length film which is gone from the internet now I think it's on my old laptop that is broken and I will never be able to retrieve the files from so no one come asking for this <laughs> but it was an hour and 20 minutes long and it was called Grayscale which is a cool name but it also meant that I didn't have to shoot in colour and it was <laughs> we didn't have an album or anything so it was just like every song we'd ever done we put some sort of visual thing to it. We also did sort of weird, not quite skits, but there was just, you know, a 20 minute segment of, uh, of the lot of us going to shop for an apple tart in Super Queen and Leak Slip and all this sort of stuff. Um, and just, yeah, just like even small little bits of music that I recorded just for that. I loved having that ability to kind of elevate something that's so small like just a 30 second piece of synthesizer music or something and then when you put a visual element to it it it, it really really lifts it so that's something I'm looking forward to seeing how this sort of project pans out there's one or two things that are going to be very last minute and sort of long one shot type ideas there's one video I shot I don't know what, what song it's going to be for yet which was a um 
time lapse of me watching the final of Love Island on my bed. <laughs> the last the last day I the last day I was in my house. Everything's packed up in boxes, and it was. We, we had a mad summer this year, I guess, and it was like one of those days. It was 25 degrees. So I'm sitting on my bed, sweating profusely, wearing a pair of football shorts and an Ireland jersey or something, drinking a can of Coke. And like my laptop is just at the foreground of the shot. And I'm just watching Love Island. I kind of forgot the camera was there after about 10 seconds. Uh, and so I haven't looked back at that footage, but there's about 45 minutes of footage of me just slightly moving around or whatever. So I'll make something out of that for sure, yeah. whatever song that will be for. You uh, mentioned, by the way, you know, admin, which of course is very fucking boring. Mm. Uh, you mentioned like doing things yourself, and I wonder if the tag DIY musician is is one of a kind of a rubbish one because I mean, like, I look at both of you guys. Both of you guys are fierce, independent, and do things a lot. I figure that's the case for a lot of musicians. I don't know if it's a particularly unique thing, but what I am curious. Well, the I in DIY is, stands for it, not independent. Just so you know. I'm aware of that, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's time to repurpose it. I am curious, though. I mean, you wrote your own press release, which I find interesting, or at least you worked on it. Yeah, some of it. But as a result, that's you in a position where you're writing your own bio. I guess you're contributing to that like in regards to yourself. So having already written a record that is tapping into the recesses of your soul over a portion of years, to then try and compartmentalize it for little fucking sound bites and tidbits. Yeah, yeah. Is that easy or is that the worst thing of all time? Well, I have to say that Zara Hedman wrote the bio, or the, P- the press release. I definitely I gave her a... Li- uh, Breakdown. Vague breakdown, bullet pointed sort of thing. That was, uh, you know, the this is your life version of, of affairs. Um, yeah, she's got a rough idea of who you are. Yeah, pretty much. But I think <laughs> that the I think that the hardest part, aside from the, the press release and the bio, that's one thing. But the hardest part is just having to kind of ask for favors and stuff. That's something I always feel very uncomfortable doing. Um, it's easy to say to you like can we do an interview for the podcast because we're friends or whatever and I've been on the podcast before and all that sort of stuff I'll give you my uh, next uh, roving reporter uh, segment post haste but uh, been a very long time it's been a long time I've been going to that many gigs I've been finishing an album um, <laughs> get off my back day yeah um, yeah, that sort of stuff is the thing that I wish I didn't have to do, or I wish came. Maybe I wish came easier to me. Yeah. Um, There's just so much extra stuff to being yeah, this thing. Yeah, I don't. I don't mind that it's extra work. That's not the problem. I've I've plenty of time to do all that sort of work. But I just I'm I'm not a hustler. You know, I'm not someone who is able to go to speed sessions or go to networking events that I, I'm going to take home a lot of business cards, follow up in every single one of them. I'm more of a, okay, we're going to release this album. I feel comfortable enough asking my friends for favours yeah. because they probably don't even see them as favours. It's just like working with each other. But having to you know, approach someone from, say, RTE, who I've never met before, and look for some sort of 
look for something off them for nothing. Uh, I find that very difficult to do, even though I probably shouldn't because, I mean, you know, culture sections exist in RTE and in magazines and stuff to be filled. So I'm helping them fill them by making art or whatever. I just find it very hard to ask for that sort of stuff without feeling like a real jerk. And I guess that's what people who are in press the press side of, of the music industry and the managerial side, that's what they don't see as being an issue. They kind of see that as, well, this is, look, this is, there's pages to be filled and there's, there's podcasts to be made. Yeah. So let's go out and let those people know that we have stuff for them to talk about or stuff for them to write about or, you know, music videos for them to make. Uh, so yeah, that stuff I wish I never had to do or I wish I was better at doing them. I'm not quite sure. But it's there. Yeah, because it, it, it's, it's quite a funny one as well because it feels like, um, Dave, we've had this conversation before as well where it feels like sometimes that like there's barely anything to send anybody to or like, you know, we were trying to put a list of like, well, who do you send stuff to mm. in the music industry right yeah, now? Yeah. And then you find yourself at a loss sometimes, right? Yeah, I, I, I think I asked you this question the other day, but I did all of the emails sort of... Uh, you know, hunting down press people. I did all of that myself. Yeah. And I had no idea what I was supposed to do in terms of just numbers or whatever. You know, I didn't know, okay, this is the first ever album. This is the only debut album we're ever going to have. Should I be sending 100 emails or 1,000 emails? I don't know. Like, I have no idea what sort of magnitude it is. So at the end of the day, I sent around 100 emails out to Irish press, radio, yeah. etc. And I still I feel, I feel like I didn't do enough, but then at the end of the day, I was like, I don't know. Yeah, there's yeah. no one else. Like I don't know who to send it to. Um, do you, Do you get a bit freaked by that that idea that it's like your debut album and the like? You you know a certain amount of what you're supposed to do, but it never yeah. really feels like you're doing enough, or that you feel like it's going to be a wasted opportunity. Or something? I think n- I'm not freaked out about it. I might have sound freaked out about there a second. But I, was just, <laughs> I was just pretending. Uh, <laughs> I, de- I ha- like we've always gone a very um, I don't know what the word is a sort of a proper way in previous releases we've yeah. always kind of paid for a PR person we've always put a huge focus on the UK and doing a London show and all that sort of stuff and the one time that we have stopped that or that we're kind of going away from that is the first album which is kind of strange but I think it was probably a good time to do it because I've set a certain expectation which is way more realistic than I ever had before you know the first time we ever hired someone to do PR for us we were written about in the Guardian and I was like it's that easy you just have to pay someone to do all that stuff for you and you just get famous overnight simple and then the next couple of times we did it, it wasn't so fruitful. Yeah, and you're still paying the same amount of money every single time. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, if not more. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's a funny, it's a f- funny part of the industry in that it's, you're, you know, you're paying someone to do a certain amount of work and the outcome is, is not really taken into consideration. Um, in, and in fairness, the outcome isn't in any way dependent on how hard they work. It's all, it's like buying this guy or whatever. Or the, the, some London press dude we were working with years ago who he, you know, got us, in inverted commas, got us into the Guardian. He was like, 
I can I know this is going to work because the guy who takes the emails for the review section he's just had a baby I know what time he does his feedings at because he was talking to me the other week so I'm going to email him the second he his baby is going for oh his like God. night feeding or whatever which was like 6.54 emailed him and got response straight away because he knew the guy was like had the baby on his shoulder and had a phone in his hand and was like, like I'm not, I don't know that like <laughs> how the hell am I supposed to know when you know Whatever, some yeah. some person in RTE is going to go feeding their baby. Uh, do you know? No, I don't know either. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. know even who has know, the it's baby. Like, I mean, it's it's Instagram code stories these days. Now you might you might you yeah, might be able fair. to get lucky. Yeah. I mean, I think Colin really might know, but I mean, like, it's one of those things. <laughs> I guess lastly, uh, if I can ask my spin one hundred three eight question, then, do it. romantic comedies. Have you got a favorite or? Um, do I? I don't know actually. I feel like if I was doing loads more press, that would come up quite yeah, often. Yeah, you'd have it immediately. Like, yeah. But I'd have an answer for it. Well, you know, Joker director Todd Phillips says that comedy is no longer any funny because of woke culture. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. But yeah, I mean, Jesus. Go back to like 10 Things I Hate About You, which is probably my favorite rom-com. Is it? Yeah. That's a good choice. Yeah, and I was watching it with somebody who hadn't seen it before recently, and they were immediately going like, this is, this is bullshit. This is like, yeah. What the fuck is he talking about? It's like, just, it's like a, an old film, just like, it, it's also it. fantastical and based off a Shakespeare thing, I think, or something. I think it, is. it might be based off a Shakespeare thing. I think it is, yeah. Great Ten things I hate about thou. Stars a real joker <laughs> as well. Um, I will answer that question with Notting Hill. Wow. Wait, which is the one with uh, Hugh Grant? Yeah, that's Notting Hill. That's uh, and Julia Roberts and as Julie a celebrity. Roberts. Yeah, that's a brilliant rom com. I'm going to say Notting Hill. He had a very lovely apartment in that film. So do you. <laughs> it was nice. It was nice. To just, maybe it was a house. It was him. He was living there with his with his buddy who was in a snorkel suit and all that. Welsh part. dude. Uh, yeah. Riss Iffins. Riss Iffins. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He plays a wacky character. I never actually saw it. It's one of those films that I've seen. Like, You've never you know, seen it? No, nah, it, it didn't look it to my taste. Um, <laughs> Richard, Richard Curtis as well, so I tend to try and stay away where I can. Um, it looked from all the trailers and all the clips. I've seen. It's one of those films where like, I've seen it through the clips and the trailers. Like I've seen all I need to see. There's, there's a mental like side story, which you definitely wouldn't have seen from the trailer, which I'm going to spoil for you now. Do it. Uh, so he... He brings her over to his buddies, yes. who is um, his, say, his best friend, I guess, yeah. and his wife, who is in a wheelchair. Yeah. And you find out halfway through the film that uh, the main character was going out with the woman before the before she was going out with her, his best friend, basically. And it was like there's just this weird like factoid that really doesn't that actually make doesn't any need sense. to be mentioned. Like, it doesn't need to be mentioned at all. Like it's super weird. Oh yeah. You're not suggesting that Richard Curtis wrote a convoluted script, are you? <laughs> I, th- I think he might have. Strange. Just for this one now. Just for this one. What isn't convoluted though, of course, is the debut album rom com from Tana Felix and David Tapley. It's out now as of this podcast. Thank you very much. And there's a gig in the Bella Bar in November. There's a gig in the Bella Bar on the twenty first of November. November. We're playing in Belfast for our Ulster fans, our Ulster listeners of the podcast as well, on the 16th of November, which is a Saturday before. And there are other things yet to be confirmed, but keep an eye on the sky and you will see the bat signal. All right. Thanks, man. Thank, Thank you. you very much for much having love. Too weak to bellow 
Alright, that was talk about some music. Now let's listen to some music, shall we? How about we blast through this pretty quick? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm fraying at the edges. <laughs> Our first song this week comes from the return of Dahi's favorite musician of all time, Caribou. I'm home. I'm home. It all seems so easy. That song is called Home. It's two and a half minutes long and people fucking love it. I love it. Um, it reminds me quite a bit of uh, Avalanches because of the soul sample. It's very warm. It's good to have him back, uh, Dan Snaith, in the Caribou guys. It's been like, what, five years since the last record, something like that. I mean, I know he's been active, but yeah, welcome return. Um, it was like a warm hug on this week of weeks. It really was, yeah. It's a great song. And also announced for the Ivy Gardens, I believe, in Dublin next summer. That'll be great. That'll be fucking Already unreal. looking forward to it. I will be there. I've never seen Caribou live. Neither have I, unless I caught them somewhere at a festival. I feel like Dahi's seen them live about 15 times. Yes, he has. He very much has. A big fan of Jay Paul. So is Dan from Caribou, yeah. Hey, maybe Um, he'll be on support duties. He won't be. (laughs) Michael Stipe will also not be on support duties, but he's back this week with a video-only release. This is called Your Capricious Soul. Craig, what's that word mean? Um, capricious is changeable, um, basically, that you should sort your act out. And this is kind of a plea to the planet um, to sort out their act. Um, I think you can actually download this on his website, which is, speaking of Jay paul it's a nightmare to <laughs> navigate. <laughs> it does have like a visitor counter. Is it like 1996 era kind geocities? Of, yeah. You can donate like um, 77 cents to um, the Extinction Rebellion cause, and this is kind of an aid of that. Um, Sounds yeah, a bit political to me, mate. To have, it's great to have Michael Stipe back. Um, on one hand, obviously, R.E.M. are the greatest American band of all time. I've said it quite a lot. Should we get Carlo in? Yeah, on let's this get one? Carlo let's back get in, Carlo. shall we? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, R.E.M.'s second biggest fan. Or perhaps yeah, biggest. He might be tied. Um, all right. Yeah. Have you heard this song yet? I have, yes. Okay, let's talk about it. Because this is... Um, Michael Stipe likes his electronics, he likes his iciness, he likes his um, kind of suicide references, um, the, the, the act, the, the, <laughs> the seminal act. He doesn't really like his R.E.M. leanings when it comes to solo work, so this is quite detached. It doesn't really go anywhere. I quite like it, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I quite like it uh, myself. But and I hate to say this about anyone who is, you know, working on solo material, but all I hear are the pockets of Mike Mills melody that isn't there. Yeah. And you kinda the 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 
what makes that band great not being there. I think it's a lovely song. Uh, I think it's a it's a great cause, um, but it just leaves a big OREM shaped hole in my heart. <laughs> I enjoyed it because to me it was yeah. extremely TV on the radio. Oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, a that's, a, that's a always good a good thing. Carlo, do you think they are the best American band of all time? Oh, OREM, yes. not TV on the radio. No, TV on like, the radio uh, in conversation. <laughs> conversation. <laughs> Dear Science is a flawless record. Should have been on that list. It should have. Even oh, though it's from 2008. 2008. But if Lady yeah, Gaga's getting in there. Yeah. Anyway, we're not talking about them. We're talking about R.E.M. I would go so far as to say I think R.E.M. are the greatest band ever. Wow. Let's give you the reaction there. Um, uh, I, I, I think... I think the band the Beatles could have been. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. If, if it wasn't for that... Uh, okay. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, it's a shout. Not necessarily against it. Best R.E.M. album? Oh, um, gee, Murmur. Murmur automatic might I, be. I kind of have. There? I have to go with automatic purely. Yeah. It's, it's it's that so sort of, obvious, but it's but it, it's it's that great line that um, that Kurt Cobain line where it's like when you make pop mu- or when you make your own outsider music so good it just becomes pop music by like sheer weight of of quality. I think that's what they did with automatic. They're, they didn't change themselves. They just went, oh, this is so good. This is the framework for what guitar pop music should be. Here yeah. You go, lads, enjoy. Thank you Good again, stuff. Carlo. I've got, a, I've got a feeling. <laughs> I've got a feeling that we'll be talking to Carlo for about twenty-five minutes later on about Nick Cave's album, but we'll see. Uh, oh, hold on. What, like the who, no, 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 no. <laughs> you completely fucking, you fucking ruined it. You ruined it. I was gonna, oh, sorry. I was going to say, well, Craig, he showed his ignorance there because you talk about best band of all time and you don't talk about the who. Yeah, it's the Who. They're, the who? Yeah. they're back for some reason. With all this music must fade, if only. Um, yeah. So this um, Pete Townsend's been talking about who this is for. Um, he said it was dedicated to every artist who has ever been accused of ripping off someone else's song. Um, this is one of those songs that's Ed about Sheeran, songwriting and that whole process, which I'm, I don't really like. It's very The Who, isn't it? It's it's like classic The Who. It's what you'd expect. Here's the thing. It's what right. you'd expect. They've been away for a long time. I believe 2006 was their last uh, album. Um, go ahead, Dave. Well, to me, <laughs> to me uh, you can do the comeback thing. The, let's drop an occasional song from a heritage act. You can do it. Uh, Doom and Gloom, to me, is like the... That's a really good oh, little so belt good. here by the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Great song. This is no doom and gloom. No, um, it has kind of echoes of their 60s work, I think, really quite a lot. Um, It's very nostalgic. Um, It's taken from a forthcoming record, Who. Um, The thought behind it is quite nice. Roger Daltrey's kind of struggled um, with his voice and just his kind of general health from like touring, you know, for decades upon decades. I think he's in a better place. His voice actually sounds quite good here. So they're inspired to just kind of give him some material to, you know, get out another Who album. But yeah, like the sentiments, it's kind of like cranky old dudes, isn't it? Like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It's quite, like, the, the sentiment of the song is, you know, it's all our music. It's quite communist and socialist, actually. And I thought there were a bunch of Tories, so that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about cranky old men, Craig, making music. Well, 
Nick Cave's back. <laughs> is he's that not fair? that old? Ah, he's you know, 60. he's an enduring figure in the world. He's he a is. very good-looking man. I'm not taking anything away from him at all because he gives us all so much, Craig. He's given us a brand new album. The album's yeah. called Ghostine. Let's take a quick listen to it and then we'll talk about it. We're all so sick and tired of seeing things as they are. Horses are just horses and their manes aren't full of fire The fields are just fields and there ain't no Lord And everyone is hidden and everyone is cruel There's no shortage of tyrants and no shortage of fools That was Bright Horses, a track off Ghostine. That's the new album from Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. It dropped last week. It's an album that you really got to commit to. Proved a bit difficult for, I think, two of us at the table. Yes. I guess before we get to Nick Cave and who he is, Craig, of course, we should note that, thankfully, we've been able to call upon an expert this week. The one, the only, Carlo Malocco. Who, by the way, makes really good music under his own name. He yes. put out his debut album over the summer, became famous on Twitter because of The Simpsons and his <laughs> acuity thereof. And he it's currently, currently Simpsons, working yeah. on new music. Carlo, how the hell are you? I'm pretty good. I like that I've employed a hype man who's now going to appear at all of my gigs to, uh, to go, leave me in. up. I've, I've got negotiable rates. <laughs> it's okay. So yes, uh, I mean, like, who do you who, who do you call? You call Carlo <laughs> in for Nick Cave, and we, we will, of course, get to your relationship with the man. That, that ended quite tempestuously, I believe, uh, but in just a moment. Craig, rather than a standard primer, because I'm just going to accept that everyone knows who Nick yeah, Cave is. Yeah, you would assume so. How about some context for this record? Okay, well, this is, I believe, the 17th um, Bad Seeds record. Um, it's, you know, he's into his 40th year of recorded music. But I guess the kind of um, numerical markers that really matter is that this is essentially the third in what has become a trilogy of records, um, which started in uh, 2013 with Push the Skyway, which saw the Bad Seeds kind of become unmoored in their sound a bit. Um, You know, that kind of earthier, crunchier noise that they were kind of so unmistakably, um, you know, known for shifted um things got a bit nebulous and while push the skyway which was a remarkable record i thought um was quite outward looking you know nick was talking about everything from the large hadron collider to hannah montana um as you do the the shift on the next record was um much more to the personal and that was of course skeleton tree which arrived um three or four years ago um, very much informed, if not in the writing, then in the tone by um, the very sudden and very sad passing of Nick's uh, teenage son, Arthur. Um, it was an immensely sad record, very sparse, even more pared away than Push the Sky Away. Um, not as melodic um, as a lot of his writing. Um and a bit of a masterpiece. So that was kind of, you know, partially written um, prior to the, the tragedy. But then, of course, yeah, hugely informed uh, in the recording thereafter. This record, Ghostine, is his first kind of full statement in the aftermath, I guess, and trying to assess and trying to cope. I mean, this feels like a record that is all about the kind of, you know, the odyssey that is trying to cope with something this unbearable. 
Carlo, as, as a long-time Nick Cave fan, before we get to this new record, what is it about Nick Cave in particular that draws you in as much as it does? Uh, I, I think he has an ability to, um, to, to, to kind of, how can I put it? He he writes songs that, to sound to sound pretentious. I'm sure he'd, he'd slap me for saying it, but he, <laughs> he he writes songs with such a literary mind. Yeah. It seems to you almost need to take Bad Seeds records in two parts. Like you kind of you marvel at them sonically, which has always been the case from when Blixo was leading the sound to McCarvey to mm. Warren Ellis. There's there's such an incredibly distinct sonic palette to them. And then you get to look at what he's doing as a lyricist. And like I, I, I think in the same realms as Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen and Dylan, uh, Nick Cave kind of legitimizes lyricism to that literary level. Yeah. Um, I, I've, I know uh, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a, a pretty pretentious <laughs> sentence to come out with, but I think he really considers things to such an extent, like you see it with the, I think it's called the the, the red right hand files, files or, yeah. which which is a, a stunning connection with an audience that I, I don't think many songwriters would be brave enough to do, where people are allowed just submit him questions, and he takes considered standpoints on them. He he works through them and he he answers them as best he can. And there's something about an artist who's put up a mystique for so long to open themselves up that way. It's like he's just given the full gamut of 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 achievement as far as lyrics go that I think anyone could expect from a songwriter. Yeah, he's a hugely engaging figure, as you say. This record, of course, as Craig notes, comes in uh, not so much the shadow of the tragic passing of Arthur Cave, but very much what comes next and what kind of perhaps life you can maybe find as you move forward in life, because, of mm. course, you just the show must go on. And, of course, there was that phenomenal documentary made by Andrew Dominic around the time of the Stunning. release, which was, to me, like, is, like even if you don't even know who Nick Cave is, you just watch it. Didn't feel too invasive. Yeah. It felt quite, I thought, thoughtful. And it also gave Nick Cave the chance to skip a media tour at a time when, of course, it yeah. would have been unimaginable to do so. But he does bounce back. He bounced back with those Q&As. There was a thing there this year where he wrote a letter to a fan, which was kind of circulated all over Twitter, which, once again, pure eloquence and yeah. empathy and just a, a, a mindset of a human being that you don't see too often. At the same time, this record, and I guess whatever happens after this point, will always be viewed now to a certain prism. Is that mm-hmm. fair? And also, can he elevate beyond that? Uh, it's a yeah, it's a big ask, and he's actually talked um, about that very thing on the the red right hand or the red hand files. That's the name. Yeah, where he was. <laughs> Didn't think of it. He was talking about. Oh, I've actually got the quote here. I might as well just kind of give you a snippet of it. So he said that I have found a way to write beyond the trauma authentically that deals with all manner of issues, but does not turn its back on the issue of the death of my child. I found with some practice, the imagination could propel itself beyond the personal into a state of wonder, and then he kind of gives a few references and prior to even seeing that quote because it really stood out for me I had kind of gotten that feeling from it it's very philosophical it's like he's almost gone beyond the more religious trappings that has kind of informed so much of his work you know there's kind of Mm. references to Jesus throughout but it's kind of like oh yeah and there's that bloke Jesus that's kind of just on the fringes of this much more important story Um, Buddhism I think features much more heavily and there is that sense of kind of serenity quiet serenity it's a very quiet record uh, it's all about kind of small moments um so you know with skeleton tree it was so raw 
It was so sparse. It was heartbreaking. With this, I think he's found a level of not solace, but a sense of kind of being able to exist and kind of, you know, separate himself from the kind of, you know, the raw tragedy of it and just kind of place it in a philosophical context, which I context, which I think helps it kind of connect with the listener. So, yes, achieved, Dave. He's <laughs> achieved it. <laughs> to be fair, I know you flubbed there, but the idea of if, if you're going to think of any musician to have a philosophical contest, perhaps <laughs> with the devil himself, it is, of course, Nick Cave. Yeah. Carlo, the first impressions of this record for you, because again, I, like again, as I've said, you're like, people who know you like I do. Big, big fan. Is there ever, ever any trepidation, especially now? Well, Nick Cave's an interesting figure in that he seems to have gone through a kind of purple tape streak for about six records now, where he seems to be continually reinventing himself at a time where he really almost seems like he shouldn't have any right to. Like, it's gotten to the point, like, people forget the two Grinderman records were 10 out of 10 wonderful, and they were a complete gear change, complete different sound. I actually wouldn't be surprised if that's what follows this record. Yeah. Because he's, you know, to, to, to wrong foot people all again, um, it seems to be just something he can he can do. Forgetting the soundtracks that, that about have been put out. Some exceptional work. Some 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 truly exceptional work. I, I I can't really think of an artist that's managed to produce this consistently high level of engaging and reinventive work at their 16th, 17th records. Mm. So any trepidation I would have had, like initially when Mick Harvey left the band, I was not worried because, you know, Warren Ellis is a genius, but it was like Mick Harvey was such an anchor to the bad seeds. I I didn't know how that unmooring was going to go. But uh, if, (laughs) if, 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 if they were... If they were pushing the sky away in their previous records, they seem to have just burst through that into the atmosphere now and they kind of float in this transcendence that I think is so interesting and singular and I, I'm just I'm genuinely excited to hear what comes next. People, people are gonna be so surprised when we give this four out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, well, I mean like how about I play the role of spoiler for a second and it's not even necessarily a critique of the record. Uh, I, I, Nick Cave is like Carlo knows this. Carlo Carlo's a very patient man because Carlo has <laughs> Carlo true. Carlo made me a Nick Cave playlist about two or three years ago and I haven't listened to it yet because I am just intimidated by Nick Cave. I know what I know, I like what I like. If I sit down to analyze critically a record I will get into it but I don't quite know what it is about Nick Cave I think it's the classic thing of like as you say 17 albums in you're like Jesus mm-hmm. Christ there's just so much to this guy I can't talk about Nick Cave with, with any level of uh, expertise that's why you're here why you're here as well Craig but I you know it's, I knew there it's, was a reason it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like I don't know art but I know what I like and I mean I don't know what it is about Nick Cave that I haven't say gone all the way in on someone like as, as I have with someone like a Trent Reznor or mm. a Kanye West or whoever I yeah, and a record like this is you must commit to it. It's been very difficult this week to try and eke out that active listening thing with this one, simply because I think we're all very busy. It's just a weird time of year, yada yada. But that's not playing fair to the record itself. When I did tune into the frequency of this one, I found myself at times a little bit untethered, a little bit lost. But for me, uh, the second part of the album, which is three tracks, two of which are like you know twelve and fourteen minutes long, whatever, mm. that really gripped me. I think the title track is a, a wonder of a song mm. uh, it's a hell it's like a play um called hollywood is very similar and it's not that i wasn't on board i mean to be fair it's like you know for all the kind of 
context and background and also, you know, atmosphere punching, titanic power that Nick Cave can have and the literary, you know, pretension or preciousness or whatever that some people may, may view in it. It is accessible. The opening track, Spinning Song, is an accessible song. Uh, same goes for What Follows. Uh, but there was just times when I just wondered if it was slightly meandering. But also I'm wondering, is that my lack of knowledge? Well, well yeah, I think, sorry, getting into the, you know, meat of the record in terms of the music, um, a lot of people have pointed out that more than ever, and it's obviously been going this way, there's a real absence of the bad seeds throughout this. Like, it does feel very closely tied to Warren Ellis. And there's Nick's no guitars, kind of, really. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. There, there's very little. Like, it's, mm. it's mainly synth, uh, some piano. It's very kind of that light atmospherics of, like, their kind of soundtrack work. Um, so you do, like, the Mick Harvey absence has probably never been more felt, just in terms of not, like, that it's, it's any slight on the record, but just that kind of presence is, is very much mm. in the past now. So, you know, the songs do kind of can tend to drift by unless you're hanging on to that voice. Um, but I think this time around, he has reintroduced kind of sweeter melodies. It's obviously not as stark as Skeleton Tree. I don't know if it has the kind of harrowing standout moments of a, of a Skeleton Tree, but yeah, it's quite accessible for the length. Uh, um, and the way it's broken up, I think, is masterfully done. You know, the well, first the first half being the children, second being the kind of longer form parents kind of trying to c- come to some conclusion. What do you reckon, Carl? Well, I think it's kind of interesting. If you indulge me for a minute. Um, Go ahead. It, it, Dave mentioned uh, One More Time with Feeling, which uh, I think is a really interesting companion piece to this because in that and on the... Uh, right-hand files. He discusses a lot about how interested he seems to be in time now and entropy and the idea that time is elastic and things happen at once and don't happen at all and the universe expands and contracts in on itself and this, that and the other. And I think that flavour is kind of central to the record. If, If you don't think about it thematically, which I'll discuss in a minute, but if you think about even the idea of how they put, you know, children are before parents the album doesn't really end because it loops in around itself with the same ending line of both songs. Mm. It's like uh, you you wouldn't want to psychoanalyze a a record like this, but to me what kind of stands out is this idea almost that when you deal with, when you're confronted with something that's so meaningless and horrific and kind of goes beyond sense, there's an interesting way to think about it in that you can either go that everything is meaningless or you can go that everything is exceptionally meaningful. Mm. And I, I, I think that's partly what he's doing with, with this record. Like there's, there's so many kind of points to, um, uh, to this throughout the lyrics. Like the main, the main structure of the record seems to be an idea of transcending grief through this kind of universal empathy uh, you mentioned Buddhism, which I think is very interesting that he's brought that in because I would be someone who would maintain that although Nick Cave has mentioned religion as a cornerstone to his uh, music, I, I don't know if he's religious. You know, he talks about how when he was younger, his father would quote slabs of Milton at him. And I think that's where he built his artistic language yeah but I don't it's think it's all referential yes yeah. and obviously he loves the drama of it he like, loves the drama of it it's it's Paradise Lost being played out in, in, in but 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 what this record does which which I think is is kind of stunning which uh, I'll, 
I won't go through track by track because we don't have a week and a half. But <laughs> if, uh, if 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 you look at say say take Bright Horses, which for me personally I think is the standout track of the record. I think there there is a lot of choices, but like Bright Horses almost brings you through the journey verse by verse because it opens with him giving this beautiful image of like unspooled horses of love in the pasture of the Lord. And it's it's real kind of classic Nick Cave balladry. Mm-hmm. And then it goes to the second verse and he goes, well, actually, that's not true. There isn't a Lord. There's no horses. This is not there's no horses in a H-bomber guy kind of way, but there's no there's no, you know, that, that this is nonsense. I'm, I'm, I'm making up something to get through this. And then as the song kind of goes on, he has a quote in it where he says, like, why not have, you know, uh, a little, uh, or, or, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's essentially like a little faith never hurt anyone. And then the last verse just kills me. I, I genuinely, I think it's, it's, it's one of the more beautiful things he's ever written, where he ties back the exceptional and the, the, these huge uh, slabs of, of, of meaning to just waiting for his wife to come home. And like yeah. he, you know, it, it, it's 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 suddenly magical. It transcends. If 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 nothing means anything, maybe that means everything. And the way he he does that in on this record and on that track in particular, I think is just glorious. Like the artistic and and the banal has become transcendent you know she's coming back on that 530 train is as important as if there's flaming horses of love and there's yeah. a god and there's everything Th- like, that kind of yeah those details remind, reminded me of like a shane mcgowan just how he can kind of floor you which is that intimate kind of nothing detail and, yeah you know what i mean and, you're and, and he, he references even that he's aware of it there's a line that i love and it sounds like a throwaway line but it's it's really not where he says he refers to his wife as like he says, I actually took note of this one. He says, you're a runaway flake of snow. You're as skinny and white as a wafer. Yeah, I know. And then the line at the end of it is, and I, I slid my my songs out from under you. And it's like, he when he says that line where it's like, you're skinny and white like a wafer, like he's he's putting out that her love, his connection to him, it's communion. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it is transcendent. And then he knows that he uses these kind of images so much that he tells the audience, yeah, I know, you know, your skinny <laughs> and wife is, yeah, I know, I know, but it is that important. And I just, the, the, the record, the record seems to be uh, tr- trying to, to find, uh, t- to bring people through this journey and, and almost it doesn't wallow like it's such a sad topic but it seems to be a positive it's yeah it's almost like a yeah it felt like a handbook or like a kind of this series of like musical rituals to kind of give you guidance or guide him through you know to somewhere well let me ask i mean i mean obviously like i think with a lot of nick cave's work that i am familiar with i mean there's definitely some ambiguity there you could do the glass half full glass half empty thing listening to this record do you think that he is in a place of healing yeah very much so and i think that's been borne out in how he's kind of opened up as a person, you know, doing mm. those kind of uh, online Q&As, the public speaking stuff. He's kind of, I think he's found another seam of empathy, which is great for him, I guess, as a person, and mm. uh, but also as a lyricist. And he, you know, Carlo, you mentioned the literary aspects of him at the start. I feel like he's going down that path of just the way he's, you know, his maturation as an artist. He will be like one, that old novelist that creates his great works later in life. Yeah. It's he's using rock as a form, which is obviously traditionally a young man's game, but he's taking it elsewhere in that way. And actually, you know, the kind of the slow motion paired back music 
makes sense with this kind of you know honed in deep dive on topics of death and kind of loss because you know for so long the the clatter and the visceral rock and roll he was mm. creating he was drawing on you know murder ballads and kind of the biblical smash and grab and all those kind of big moments but when he actually hones in and goes no here's the real human fallout and loss from those gigantic moments let's hone in let's pair everything back I think there's a real unity there that is interesting because I mean the idea of like the confrontational theatricality of it him kind of going up against like you know concocted conjured up monsters and now having to look inwards and do a lot of soul searching I mean it might sound throwaway to say yeah he's definitely healing but like it really could have gone either way we could be saying he was never the same and and like I, I think he tries to bring us through that really on Hollywood, it's it's very interesting. It's a beautiful song, yeah. Because it 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 starts off sounding like this is going to be not dour, but it it has a sinister feel as it starts. Yeah. Do you know it has that kind He's of pissed creeping. off at the start? Like it's yeah. a sarcasm there. There's you know. it's it's not na- not nasty, but it's it's approaching nasty, and then it manages to do this incredible thing with its prestige at the end that it it brings you through the 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 story about the first tenant of uh buddhism yeah, where it, it to, to to anyone who's not aware there's a verse about kisa and the mustard seed and it's a you know it's a story about a lady who's whose whose child has passed away and she goes looking for any sort of solace and she's told oh well we can bring your child back if you can bring uh, a mustard seed from a house that anyone has where someone hasn't died and the, the the reality of it is that it's impossible because everybody has had something horrific happen everyone has had someone die and it's like he's trying to let everybody in on this that this record isn't for him this record is about how he has almost he's almost gained that level of enlightenment that everyone is is grieving everyone has horrific things in their life and then you know with the last line, you know, he's just waiting for, for, for peace to come, you know, that, that maybe that can give a little closure to people that if, if we have that empathy and understanding that grief isn't just personal. Yeah, well said. Um, yeah, to wrap up, I guess, he has kind of taken something totally unbearable and made something that, you know, you can embrace and get a lot from. It feels really trite to even put a number on this. I was thinking that, yeah. Especially because, like, I like I haven't like, spent enough time with it either. Yeah. It really does feel weird to put a rating on it. Uh, so I'm not sure if I will rate it. I will just say that what I have heard, I think, is quite magical at times. I can understand the criticisms of people who want more of a drive, who want more of a, you know, a structure, maybe like clanking parts together. Yeah. But I do think for what it is, and what it says about the human condition, the human soul, his in particular and his wife's and uh, like the whole grieving process. And uh, yeah, uh, yeah, of course. I mean, like Arthur Cave is on this record. I mean, like it would be, it would be remiss to suggest that he isn't and that he won't be a part of every record going forward. But there's an amazing ability here to get beyond headlines and get beyond kind of conventional narratives and form your own path. And even the album artwork to me is like Garden of Eden or something. I didn't quite know what it was meant to mean, but like it just felt that like, there's a, a beautiful kind of honey-soaked undercurrent to some of this, and it is great to hear him taking ownership and command. So it's a recommend, yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, another masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I genuinely think you're, you're talking about a trilogy of, of, of three really stunning records, and 
I actually think this might stand out above them. I, I think this could be one of his one of his greatest works, and for an artist of his caliber, that's that's saying quite a bit. Yeah, and you know, you know, going forward, I I agree. I think we will see him switch it up next time, and maybe the garage rock will return the Mando caster. Warren will put, get that out, and we'll get some noise. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, some swagger perhaps in the future. Carlo, have you had a chance to listen to anything else this week? Um, I've been listening to uh, I've been listening to lots of tracks by Mallrat. I really like what she's put out this year. There's a right. song called Charlie in particular. I think it's great. I was very surprised by the Lumineers record. Not a band I ever really? particularly. Are they one of those bands that are not what we think they are because yeah. of the big song? Yeah, the uh, big... absolutely. I, I I think they were unfortunate that they're they were given. I assume a contract on the shoulder of lesser bands. But their new record, uh, it's about addiction and, and, and grief around a family member. And it's stunning. It's a stunning record. All right. Danny Brown. Um, yeah, I haven't had as much time with it as I, as I would like, but it's just brilliant kind of boom bap. It's a very short, concise work. It doesn't really have that narrative um, cohesion that he's attempted before. It's just like standout track after standout track. Q-Tip is brilliant, production-wise on it. Um like the Run the Jewels feature is probably the weak point of the album. So, Oddly, yes. Yeah. I love them, but I just didn't think it was good. Yeah, they sound like they need a break, maybe just kind of recharge your batteries. Take care, lads. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Danny Brown is brilliant. And he's officially like an OG. It's 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 amazing to see him like he's kind of dishing out wisdom and he's in a good place and it's it's great to hear. All right. I've been listening to Man of the Moment and Roving Reporter at Large, David Tapley oh, yeah. of Tandem Felix, having released Romcom finally into the world. Congratulations so again, David. It's a terrific record. And I pretty much have that on repeat when I when and when I can. This episode of New Encore was engineered by Eve Murray. Uh, that isn't me skipping over Tandem Felix too much because I'm gonna play <laughs> that in a minute. But first of all, Carlo, thank you so much for your expertise. Always welcome. Thank you very much, yeah, sir. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you for having Thank me. You. Get Carlo on to talk about Nick Cave. Where, yeah, when, check out, when and where you check can. out Carlo's album. Check out Carlo's music. It's brilliant. Yeah. All over Spotify. Getting all, getting those plays and you're back writing again as well. Yes, so I am. That's am. good. More to come. So yeah, Tan and Felix. Rom-com. It's out. It's out in the world. It's 10 tracks of Americana, countryfied melancholy and it's done very, very well indeed. And I want you to go and listen to it. If you're wondering what that sounds like, it sounds like this. This is a track called Tapley Takes a Stroll. I hope you enjoy it. My name is David William Hannity. This has been No Encore. There will not be an encore, Craig. What? <laughs> We've cancelled the encore. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Bye. I was at home and I was by myself. I drank a coffee and worried. About my health The sun was beaming in my window So I thought to myself That I'd take a stroll That I'd take a stroll That I take a stroll That I take a stroll
me to my knees I like the smell of the rain on the ground When it hasn't rained in a long, long time I take a stroll In my domain I think it's going okay But then I remember your way Then I fell so If I took a stroll If I took a stroll I thought that it would help If I took a stroll This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. The been thinking about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.